Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This week on the California Report magazine. With all eyes on the inauguration, we bring you the story of one man who's a Kamala Harris superfan. She literally saved my life. No exaggeration, my life was breaking bad with show tunes. And the challenges of distance learning during the pandemic for students who speak mom, an indigenous language from Guatemala. Plus a tribute to three pioneers in the food world whose loss comes as a big blow to California farming. I've had trees talk to me going, well, thank you, you're actually taking care of me again, and you know, I've been alone. There's a spirit in those plants. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Many of us are still rocked by the siege of the Capitol. Some of us are anxious about the upcoming inauguration, but a lot of Californians are getting ready to celebrate. Our state is about to send the first woman and woman of color to the White House. The whole world will be watching as Kamala Harris is sworn in as our next vice president. But there's one guy who will be tuning in who says he owes his life to her. His story is like something out of a movie. Here's the California Report's health correspondent, April Demboski. Growing up in Modesto in the 70s, Billy Lemon was popular and outgoing. He was kind of a jock. But he says all that was a cover-up. I really wanted to be, you know, a backup dancer for Chorus Line. I, I didn't want you to know that, and so would secretly listen to Chorus Line at home by myself when my parents and my sisters were gone. Hide all that stuff all the time is exhausting. It's exhausting. His reckoning came when he was 27. He was still in college, studying abroad in Europe, and got an invitation to see Mass at the Vatican on Christmas Day. And I was in, like, row number 12 with Pope John Paul, who had been the Pope my entire life. I was as close to what I had been raised to believe was God as I would ever get. And I said, I, you know, I'm gay. I'm putting it out there. I'm, I know that I am gay. 
that was the moment. The next week, I was wearing a fake ostrich feather coat, and I was listening to Madonna. When you call my name, it's like a little prayer. When Billy came back to California, he headed straight for San Francisco. He was 30, but he says it was like he was 16, discovering his sexuality for the first time. And it was like a gay paradise. It was Mecca. It was the time of very big dance clubs here. There was one every night. You know, you're in a dance club with a thousand men. They're all basically naked. And most of, good majority of them are high. It was off the wall crazy. Billy got into crystal meth. It wiped out his shame, his inner critic, and it gave him the sex drive of a 16-year-old. It was fun. Until it wasn't. After the Twin Towers came down on 9-11... He lost his bartending job. Hospitality here in the city came to a screeching halt. Restaurants all over the place closed down. It's kind of like now, uh, to a lesser degree. And that's when I started selling. At first, it was just to support his own habit. But eventually, he was shipping pounds of meth across the country. You know where Bodine's is over on, the, on Fisherman's Wharf? I would get bread bowls and I would hollow them out. I would line the inside of the sourdough with meth and then cover it back up and shrink wrap the bread and then send loaves of bread with some accoutrement from Fisherman's Wharf so it looked like a care package to people in Boston. And then they would literally send me $15,000, $16,000 in 20s or 100s via FedEx. If you've ever, have you ever seen Breaking Bad? Every episode. Okay, so my, in no exaggeration, my life was Breaking Bad with show tunes. And that sounds, sounds fun and funny, but it wasn't. It was, it was that bad. There were guns and there was people getting robbed. There were stolen cars, people getting beat up. And it was, it was bad. Over the years, Billy was arrested three times. Raids all the time. The first two times, he served a month or so in jail. And absconded from probation. Had the third a time, he got caught with half a pound of meth. Half a pound of dope. And was facing a mandatory, mandatory sentence. For a state prison, without question. The day he was scheduled to go before the judge, he sat in his jail cell, desperately bargaining with himself, with God, with the universe. And I said, please, just anything, please, just make, is there any way that you can get me out of this? Billy was escorted to the courtroom. He stood before the judge in an orange jumpsuit and shackles. And the judge dismissed his case. I was released that day. This is CNN Breaking News. Hundreds of narcotics cases are in jeopardy. Hundreds of cases have been thrown out. More than a thousand criminal drug cases may have to be dropped. A 60-year-old lab technician accused of stealing drug evidence. Suspected of stealing cocaine evidence. Stole cocaine evidence. All these cases had to get thrown out. I was the lucky beneficiary of one of those cases. I mean, it was like a it was like Christmas for drug addicts. Everybody was getting released. This was the decision of then San Francisco District Attorney Kamala Harris. She didn't want to drop a thousand cases, but faced with tainted drug evidence and under fire for failing to disclose the scandal to defense teams, she did, reluctantly. To Billy, it was the answer to his prayer sign that the universe wanted something different for him. So I committed that day to stop selling drugs, and I did. Then he made his way to rehab. 
Through years of therapy, Billy unpacked all the shame and trauma underlying his addiction, the internalized homophobia. He's been sober for eight years and now runs the Castro Country Club, helping other gay men get off drugs. Billy says it's all because of Kamala. She saved my life. She literally saved my life. Like, she has no idea that she saved my life, but she saved my life. She gave me my second chance. Billy continued to draw inspiration from Kamala Harris as her political career advanced, from DA to attorney general to senator. It's as though each of her successes was an affirmation of his own small triumphs. When she announced her run for president, Billy's friend told him it was time to take the next step. He texted me immediately and he's like, girl, you've got to work on her campaign X amount of hours to kind of like pay back the fact that she kept you out of prison and doesn't even know it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm already making a shirt. Billy canvassed and raised money for Harris's campaign. He says she's a fighter for folks who struggle. And that smile. I don't know. I just I love her. I think she's fantastic. Really. I really do. I think she's fantastic. Of course, other people have mixed reviews about Kamala Harris and her record as DA. In San Francisco, she had to walk the line between being the top cop and living up to her more progressive promises. Either way, she was not in the business of handing out -out get-out-of-jail-free cards. She initially fought hard to keep all those drug cases alive. Billy knows this, but he sets it aside. He's got his narrative about her role in his life, and he's sticking with it. It was easy for me to put her on a pedestal. And uh, since putting her on that pedestal, she's only gotten bigger. I feel this kind of like weird fairy godmother connection to her. The gay community has had a steady run of celebrity fairy godmothers over the years. Judy Garland, Madonna, Beyonce, especially for men of Billy Lemon's generation who've been rejected by their families or the church. They've elected these women to fill the role of nurturer and advocate. A lot of us as gay men that grew up in kind of strict religious dogma, the idea of God is just kind of gross. And so the idea of a goddess actually sounds really kind of awesome. So for Billy, it's fully in line with his experience and his politics to deify Kamala Harris, especially now that she will be the tie-breaking vote in the Senate, responsible for some of the biggest decisions in the country. It's kind of rad. It's like, it's super rad. The first, like, 50-50 vote that they have and they get to zoom in on her gaveling in the vote is kind of badass. Whether it was intentional or not, Billy says he turned his life around because of a decision she made. Her ascension to power is just another sign that he made the right decision to believe in her, even if she is just the human symbol of a massive lucky break. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. We'd love to hear what you think about the inauguration as a Californian. What are you most looking forward to as a new era begins in Washington? You can leave us a message at 415-636-9801 or send us a note at calreport at kqed.org. That's 415-636-9801 or calreport at kqed.org. We'd love to include your voice on next week's show. 
And now we're going to turn to a story about how the pandemic has been making things more challenging for schools that serve some of the newest Californians, Guatemalan immigrants who speak a Mayan language called MAM. Maria Aguilar grew up speaking it, but she says back in Guatemala in the 1980s, her teachers would punish her and other students for talking in MAM. Sometimes the teacher got angry or frustrated us to talk in Spanish. Maria never had an interpreter to help bridge the language divide. But today that's exactly what she's doing in Oakland, which is home to one of the biggest mom communities in the nation. And until recently, Maria was the only full-time mom interpreter for the school district, which serves some 1,300 students who speak the language at home. KQED's education reporter Vanessa Rancaño tells us Maria's job has only gotten more demanding. Maria's calendar is a solid block of phone calls and video conferences. One hour, she's helping a teenage student who recently came here from Guatemala communicate with her immigration attorney. Another, she's walking a parent through an unemployment application. Buenos dias, na. And one morning, Maria is interpreting for a sixth grader named Yoscar Godinez and his mom, Francisca. They came here from Guatemala four years ago. They're meeting over Zoom with Emily Rogers. She's a social worker who supports newcomer students like Yoscar. So we can get to know you better. Can you share something positive or something that Yoscar likes to do? They're not getting very far. Did we lose them? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Every couple minutes, the Godinez's connection cuts out and they have to reconnect. Here they come. Okay, you're back. But it keeps dropping. I think we might have to change to a three-way call, Maria. For Yoscar, it's only the latest technological hurdle since classes moved online. His mom doesn't know how to use a computer, and Yoscar had never used one at home before this year. He had trouble with the laptop he borrowed from his school. He missed two weeks of classes before he got help. Across the district, barriers like these mean he and other mom speakers are much less likely to show up for online classes than Spanish and English speakers. So administrators asked Maria Aguilar if she could help make a video tutorial coaching families through setting up Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, to connect the video has some 160 views, but Maria knows the need is much deeper. Many of these families grew up like her, without internet or computer, some without electricity or without learning to read or write. So Maria has found herself building tech literacy from the ground up. How to work with parents who can't read, it's not easy. She spends hours on video calls trying to walk them through navigating the internet for the first time, even where to position their cursors over the icons on the screen. This one, no, this one, this one, no, that one. Sometimes I feel my head like breaking. 
As much as it sounds like Maria's winging it here, Oakland Unified actually stands out as a model for its work to support recent immigrant students, especially at the high school level. But language barriers can prevent mom kids from fully benefiting from those services. And with one of the highest concentrations of mom speakers in the nation, the district is relying on interpreters like Maria more than ever. Maria is in very high demand, and she's working regularly at more than 40 schools. Nate Dunstan is Maria's boss and runs the district's refugee and newcomer program. He says teaching through computer screens makes it much harder to get around language barriers. Teachers can't rely on visual cues as much or use other students to help interpret like they used to. So they call Maria. And even when mom parents speak some Spanish, Dunstan says, it can be hard to earn their trust by phone. And then Maria starts talking to them and and everything is all of a sudden sort of fluid and familiar and clearly just much more comfortable. The job has become so important, the district recently hired another full-time interpreter. But with just two of them for 1,300 students and their families, some schools are finding creative solutions. One elementary school enlisted trilingual Mayan mom parents to interpret. And at one high school, teachers are training multilingual mom students to sit in on Zoom classes and interpret for their classmates. That's not making Maria's job any easier just yet. Sixth grader Yoscar Godinez says he's starting to forget his mom. These days, he feels most comfortable speaking Spanish, and less time at school means his English is slipping. He's embarrassed to speak English in front of his classmates. He panics and feels like his heart is jumping out of his chest. He worries about saying things wrong. None of this came up during his recent conference with the social worker. But Yoscar got at least one thing out of that meeting. Maria Aguilar made an impression on him. He likes that she speaks mom, English, and Spanish. He brings up the time he interpreted for his mother during the family's asylum process. He explains how important it was and how his mom thanked him. He seems proud. Maria interpreted for her parents as a child, too, though she didn't think of it as that at the time. I never um, think about, like, to be an interpreter, but I feel so, so happy and proud of myself. Like, I am able to help my people because I have experienced how they feel. It's not easy. As for Yoscar, Maria wants him to know he doesn't have to choose between holding on to his native language and embracing a new one. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Oakland. If you're a regular listener to our show, you've probably heard our series, California Foodways, with intrepid reporter Lisa Morehouse, who's been visiting every one of California's 58 counties to take us into orchards, tiny family-run cafes, and into the woods to forage for wild mushrooms. She's also introduced us to some incredible Californians who harvest and prepare the food we eat. And as 2020 came to a close, she learned that some of those people passed away. 
we wanted to invite her onto the show to help memorialize some of those food pioneers and remind us of their legacies. Hey there, Lisa. Hi, Sasha. Let's start with somebody who many consider to be the godfather of organic farming in California. My name's Amigo Bob Contesano. Yes, I do have a last name. A lot of people don't even identify me that way. It's rare. So most people knew him as Amigo Bob or Amigo. That's a nickname he got in high school. Amigo was a ninth generation Californian. And at an Earth Day rally back in 1970, he found some inspiration for the rest of his life. That's when he learned about pesticides. And he began farming and modeling how to farm without pesticides. You did a story about him back in 2016 in Nevada County, and you talked about how he's a kind of treasure hunter. These treasures that he was looking for were trees and the fruit and nut and ornamental trees that had been planted at homesteads and stagecoach stops and little orchards in gold country in the late 1800s. When I meet with Contesano at his house outside Nevada City, he straps a ladder on his car, tosses bags in his trunk, and takes me on a tour. This is our favorite walnut tree right there, in fact. And this pear tree standing between a community hall and a gas station, it's probably 120 years old. It is absolutely just the most hardy tree. It has thrown huge crops every year in the drought. It doesn't get diseases, it doesn't get insects. Nobody prunes it, nobody waters it, nobody fertilizes it. Just prolific as heck. I've picked over 500 pounds of pears off of it. Whoa, off of that one tree? Yeah. He and two partners run a nonprofit, the Felix Gillet Institute, named for the French Nevada City nurseryman who imported and introduced hundreds of plants to the region over a century ago. They find and propagate these resilient heirloom trees, which Contesano says have lessons for growers in California today, where highly tended crops face drought, pests, and disease. If we can figure out how to take those characteristics and meld them into modern agriculture, we're going to have a more sustainable agriculture. With a name like Amigo, dreadlocks down to his waist, and a year-round outfit of shorts and tie-dye, Contesano has had plenty of people write him off over the years. I'm a hippie. But Amigo Bob was also a very serious and influential figure in the farming movement. Oh, yeah. He, he spent a lot of time advising big agricultural companies on how they could go organic. And Amigo started California's first natural food distribution company and its first organic farm supply company. So Amigo died in late December after a long fight with cancer. And since then, the tributes have really been pouring in from people who bought trees at his nursery to fellow farmers and to folks like Michael Pollan and Alice Waters, who say he was really influential in changing food and farming in our state. I love that part in your interview with him, Lisa, where he talks about how we as human beings and plants kind of have an intertwined history. He told me that he felt that every time he stopped and looked at a tree. I oftentimes just stop and try and feel the vibe of the person that planted it, you know. I know this sounds a little odd. I've had trees talk to me going, oh, thank you. You're actually taking care of me again. And, you know, I've been alone. There's a spirit in those plants. Lisa, let's talk about another big loss for California, the death of Marshall McKay. He died of COVID just before New Year's at the age of 68. Tell us about him. Well, when I met him, Marshall McKay was the chairman of the Yochadihi Wintun Nation in the Cape Valley, which is about an hour west of Sacramento. 
Um, and, and at that time, he told me about how before European contact, the Cape Valley was a kind of thoroughfare. Um, connecting indigenous people from the Bay Area and the Central Valley with Clear Lake and the Mendocino Coast. When people, outsiders, came into the valley, gold rush prospectors, cattle ranchers, uh, soldiers. McKay says his ancestors fled to the hills, but many were still massacred. We were in the way, and so we were removed. It was a genocide. It just hasn't been, it hasn't been talked about you know, in history. Those who survived were relocated to barren land. It was a way of uh, slowly killing the tribe. But Marshall McKay's life's work was really to preserve and revive his tribe. He told me then that the tribe had almost been decimated, but they were brought back to life through gaming and the lucrative Cash Creek Casino that they built, and then really what they did with those earnings. Well, part of it was in agriculture, right? Right. The tribe was able to actually buy pieces of land in their ancestral territories, and they planted olive trees and started producing olive oil under the brand Seca Hills. Marshall McKay also worked for indigenous causes more broadly here in California. He served on California's Native American Heritage Commission. Right. And, and he also fought against the use of indigenous symbols as mascots in sports. But in our interview, in our time together, he really emphasized the importance of economic independence for his tribe, of owning and working the land there. And he told me that doing that work really eased the tensions between tribal members and their farmer neighbors in the Cape Valley, who had been pretty resentful of the tribe's casino. After they got into agriculture, they were all in the same line of work. That wasn't like that a few years ago. People were uh, not looking at us in the eye, and we weren't looking at them in the eye, and, you know, now it's changed. The tribe's membership is up to about 70 people, and McKay says to keep them grounded and engaged despite their newfound wealth, they receive higher incomes if they've graduated from high school or work or attend college full-time. Are you doing something for yourself instead of sitting down and, and just waiting for the handout? All members belong to committees to learn about tribal governance and casino operations and farm and land management so they can make thoughtful decisions about their future. I think our main objective these days is to acquire pieces of land that are significant to us and, and that have meaning. And he says all of this valley has meaning to his tribe. Finally, Lisa, you learned that another farmer you profiled from Sutter County also passed away toward the end of last year. Yeah, I met Mohinder Singh at a Sikh festival in Yuba City called Nagar Kirtan. It's a multi-day festival and a parade which centers around the Sikh temple there. It's more recognition that we are a community living here. And then since then, it's been going on bigger and bigger every year. 80,000 people, a, a lot of them are six for sure, but plenty of other Californians, come to Yuba City every year for this celebration. You got to spend some time on Mohinder's farm. Let's play a clip from that part of your story. At 86, he still farms on his property in Live Oak, just outside Yuba City. Today, he's overseeing the kiwi harvest, but for most of his life here, Gog grew peaches. Colder nights, when temperature drop, silence prevail. Here's where I tell you that in addition to being a farmer, Mohinder Gog's a bit of a poet with a number of books published in Punjabi. If my trees survive the frosty night, 
I will forget all the pain. I'm a peach farmer. <laughs> he talked about being one of the few men in the area wearing a turban when he came to the U.S. in the 1960s. It helped me a whole lot, the turban. I just really remember that I did a double take when he said this, just knowing about all of the hate crimes that the Sikh community have endured in California. I asked him a bunch of questions about isolation and discrimination, but Mohinder just insisted that his turban opened doors. And he was a man who really dove into civic life and connecting with the community. And he was even a delegate to the Democratic Party. And tragically, he died after a tractor accident on his farm last October. Yeah, that's right. His grandson wrote me soon after and told me that at age 89, he was still farming every day until the accident. And here's something else that he wrote. He said, amid our own fears about everything happening in this country, my grandfather always reassured us that our home gives us back all the love we put into it. Very appropriate words to come from a farmer, no? Lisa Morehouse produces a series called California Foodways. She brought us remembrances of three Californians she's profiled on our show who all passed away toward the end of 2020. And that's it for our show this week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Amanda Font is our director, and our engineers are Brendan Willard and Seal Muller. Our team also includes Julia McAvoy. And welcome to our new intern, Hector Arzate, who got his start in journalism at the newspaper called El Leñador at Humboldt State. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.